You're listening to Food Psych, a podcast about nutrition, eating disorders, and body image. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in health at every size. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships to food. Hey guys, welcome to episode 74. I am super stoked about this episode because it's a repeat visit with one of my favorite guests of all time, Isabel Fox and Duke. So she was on the podcast back in January of 2015. It's episode 36 called Food Sanity, if you guys want to check it out. Um, But I know many of you have because it's one of our most downloaded episodes of all time. In fact, I think it's the most downloaded episode of all time. Um, So Isabel is such a fantastic guest. She just has a great way of speaking about all of this stuff, the anti-diet and intuitive eating and body positivity stuff that you have come to love from this podcast. Um, I I think. Isabel, really, for being one of the first guests to really get into it. And um, it sort of showed me that talking about this stuff on the podcast won't alienate listeners and actually will bring listeners in because when she was first on the podcast, it was in season two, which was focused specifically on eating disorder recovery. And my fear at that time was if I was talking to people who had active eating disorders, um, they might not really resonate with these health at every size and body positive messages. And that episode just totally blew that theory out of the water. I was like, okay, great. People love this. So she was really instrumental in changing the direction of this podcast. And so it's great to have her back on. Um, We're not going to do the traditional food psych episode this time because she already shared her story about her relationship with with food growing up, her history of eating disorder recovery and drug addiction recovery, um, and all of that great stuff in the previous episode. So go check that out to hear more about her story. And then today we're going to get into a special topic that kind of is a pet issue for both of us, which is the idea of emotional eating. So, you know, you might not have heard me talk about emotional eating very much on the podcast or in my work in general, and you'll hear why in this episode. And then Isabel talks a lot about emotional eating in her work and really does a lot to debunk this idea of emotional eating. So she'll explain more why that is uh, in the episode too. So I'm really, really excited to share this one with you guys in just a moment. First, I want to just say real quick, we're sponsored today by my intuitive eating online course, which you can learn more about at christyharrison.com slash course. You've heard me talk about it on the podcast before, and now I actually have another cool option with the course, which is that you can do some one-on-one Q&A coaching with me in addition to the course. So that's totally optional. People can still do the self-paced course as is with the private Facebook group as well for some discussion and community support throughout the course. And then if you'd like to also add the individual work with me on top of that, um, that's available as an extra option. So check that out. Learn more about it at christyharrison.com slash course. The one-on-one coaching is a really great way to just get some individualized attention, get some of your questions answered um, as you work through the principles of intuitive eating, which I know can be really challenging if you're just starting out in them or if you've been coming off a long history of dieting. So I was there too because I, when I first read the book Intuitive Eating, you may have heard me say last week, I think I really had a hard time 
time with that reject the diet mentality chapter. Um, But over time, I sort of opened up to it and started to really understand the principles after really years of working on them. So it definitely can take some time to master intuitive eating. And if you want a coach and a guide um, to help answer some of your questions and work through it with you, I'm your gal. So go find out more about that at christyharrison.com slash course. And then the other way to support the podcast is totally free, and that is by going to iTunes and leaving us a great rating and review. So I really, really appreciate all the nice reviews people have left for the podcast because it helps bring us up in the ratings and helps other people find these body positive messages who need them. So to leave your own rating and review, just go to iTunes from either your computer or your phone, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click on the result that comes up under podcasts, and then click to the ratings and reviews tab and you can leave your rating and review there. Thanks so much to everyone who's left ratings and reviews so far. I really appreciate it. And it just warms my heart to get nice messages from you guys about how the podcast is helping you. So that is why I do what I do. I started out, I started this podcast three and a half years ago because I had gotten so much benefit from listening to other people's podcasts about not anything to do with food or body, but just, you know, opening up about their personal shame and their stories and, you know, things they had gone through in their lives that really resonated with me and made me feel less alone. And when I started Food Psych, I thought I could do that for food, for, you know, people's relationships with food. Um, And it was super healing for me to also start the podcast and talk to other people about that stuff, too, because... I was in the end stages of my recovery, and I think the final step for me was really understanding, oh, right, I'm not alone. This is not some crazy thing that I went through because I'm broken. Um, Other people struggle with this stuff, and there is help for us. So that's why I started the podcast, and I have gotten so many great messages from you guys that that is kind of the function it's serving for you, too, is that you're hearing what other people have gone through with food in their bodies and that there is another way to relate to these things. Things, you know, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. So if you agree, if the podcast has given that to you and you want to share the message with others, please leave us a nice rating and review on iTunes whenever you have a chance. Thanks so much, guys. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Isabel Fox and Duke. Um, I should say that at the end, we forgot to have her let people know where they can find her. So go to IsabelFoxandDuke.com if you want to learn more about her work and read her blog. And you can also watch her free video series at StopFightingFood.com. So now here is our conversation. I spoke with her via Skype from her home in San Francisco, California. So tell me about this history you have of thinking of yourself as an emotional eater. Okay, so this is um, this is like it's just a as I was saying to you right before we got on recording a really interesting uh, area of thought, right? Because you know one of the things I feel like very few people think about or really understand is that the concept of emotional eating or the concept of an emotional eater didn't really exist until pretty recent history, right? Like I'm thinking, I I mean, I don't, I've never read any literature like prior to like the 1960s that ever mentioned this word Mm -hmm. or conceived of this word, right? And, And so many people think of themselves as, quote, emotional eaters, like, this is my constitution. I am an emotional eater. I am a food addict. Ooh, food addict. We should talk about that also Mm -hmm. at some point today. Um, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I could talk about the quote food addiction all day. That's the whole, yeah, we'll we'll get there. Definitely. But, um, But yeah. And so, you know, it's really interesting how this sort of word evolved, right? It realistically, I think that people don't necessarily always think about it like most things 
the term emotional eating or the term emotional eater is culturally constructed, right? It's a relatively Mm -hmm. new cultural construction that has developed pretty much as a result of diet culture over time. Um, And so, yeah, so I'll just say really quickly, just my personal experience, you know, uh, one of the things that was most difficult in me recovering from, you know, various sort of disruptive behaviors with food and ideas around food and attitudes towards food was that at a certain point, right, the primary things that I was, quote, dealing with was binge eating and emotional eating, in quotes, right? I very much identified with these terms, like I am a low bottom binge eater. I cannot control myself around food. I eat, you know, with, if I don't sit on my hands and try not to eat, I will literally eat my feelings all day, Mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I heavily identified with this. I thought that this was something like innate and inborn to me that I just, you know, popped out this like screwed up, you know, mentally screwed up, psychologically insane person that just, you know, can't control themselves around food and can't, you know, control themselves around food. And then there's a quote, a binge eater mm-hmm. by identity and or and or is quote, an emotional eater by identity. That is how I identified myself. Like, hi, I'm Isabel. I'm from New York and I'm a binge eater. Like, hi, I'm Isabel. I'm from New York and I'm an emotional eater. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and and ironically, you know, I think one of the things that we often don't talk about and one of the many things, you know, obviously I love many, many things about books like intuitive eating and, you know, uh, sort of mindful eating, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that I think doesn't get enough airtime is the fact that it is so easy to add morality and judgment to these behaviors Mm -hmm. in a way that is actually really reminiscent of diet culture and actually keeps us in diet-like thinking around those behaviors, right? It keeps us thinking, there's something wrong with me. I suck. I ate emotionally. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's such a way to, that's a stick to beat yourself with. Right. It is a stick to beat yourself with. Right. And ultimately, I always tell people, you know, one of the last diets I ever went on was the don't eat emotionally diet. (laughs) That was probably one of the I think that that was one or that was like the second or maybe the third. Maybe the last diet I ever went on actually was the love yourself to lose weight diet. Oh, yes. (laughs) It's a very popular one in this day and age, I think. Such a popular one. Such a popular one. I could talk about the love yourself to lose weight diet all day long. Oh, yeah. Also. But one of the diets I went on was the donate emotionally diet, you know, where I was just like, my eating emotionally is the thing that is wrong with me. It is the thing keeping me from peace and freedom and sanity in my life, right? Like if I wasn't an emotional eater or binge eater, but again, we can talk about the distinction or differences between binge eating, emotional eating. I think different people have different, different definitions and I certainly have my own mm-hmm. definition. Um, but yeah, like it was really interesting to me that I feel like when I let go of that label, when I let go of that right or wrong and was like, yeah, sometimes I eat Oreos when I'm sad. Like, what you going to do about it? You know, like <laughs> that was a that was like one of the like the major definitive turning points in my relationship with food. Like that was that was actually like piece. That was like my one of my biggest pieces of peace and sanity just came from right that right there. Mm-hmm. How did you get to that? God, I mean, I think that there were like multiple different moments along the way that I've learned, you know, I think there were, there was sort of one big moment that I'll describe in a second, followed by a series of other things that I learned mainly having to do with, you know, a lot of body politics education and sort of, you know, social education around like, oh yeah, like why is my food being policed? Like, yeah, like what is the big deal? Like outside of the context of fat phobia, 
is this a problem mm-hmm. in reality? Like, is the fact that sometimes when I sat, I'm sad, I eat ice cream and watch TV, like, is that a problem? Is that like a, is that really like the worst coping mechanism that could possibly ever be in the con outside of the context of fat phobia? Or is it fat phobia that makes that the worst possible thing that a person can do? Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, I was like, I'm not shooting heroin, guys. Like, it's, um, it's ice. Let's like get some perspective, right? Um, and if that, you know, if you were accepting of your body size, would eating ice cream be anything to sneeze at? Like, no, right? It's right. You know, one of the things I talk about with my clients is like, I'm like, you can eat emotionally every single day, all the time, if you want to. The question is, do you want to? Right. Right. Really actually like talking to that person, but like, these are your choices. Like you get to do with your body what you want to do. Like, I'm not going to tell you that like having cookies every time you're sad is wrong. Like there's no morality here. Mm -hmm. Um, but let's just have a conversation about what you really want. You know, and and like, let's put this ball in your court. Like, I think Mm -hmm. that part of body positivity is about, you know, body autonomy. And this is a term we've used a lot just casually, you know, as colleagues, you know, this this term body autonomy, I get to do with my body and you get to do with your body is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we're teaching intuitive eating, I think it's much more effective to you know, really let people know, like, you really are allowed to do whatever the hell you want. Like, there really is no limit to, like, what you can and can't do with food. Now that you know that, let's have a question about what you really want. Mm-hmm. Or let's have a conversation about what you really want. I totally agree. I think it's, it's yeah, putting the ball back in the person's court. Like, right. there's nothing, there's no outside rules or structure telling you you have to do something because that either sets you up to like be out of touch with your body and your desires and just kind of do something based on the rules or rebel against the rules or like right. not be sure what you you know what you really want. So yeah, if you can just kind of put that all aside and really feel that you do have the autonomy and the um you know you deserve to be able to make that choice for yourself, then it's yeah. so much easier to make self-care decisions. I have this right. little phrase that I've used a lot that's like self-care not self-control, you know, because yeah, if you can like stop trying to control yourself around food and start just choosing what you want and you know let go of the control let go of the rules but make your choices from a place of self-care you know sometimes that is going to be eating ice cream on the couch and sometimes that is going to be a you know balanced plate with protein carbs and vegetables and whatever you know and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's going to be something in between and like you get to make that choice based on how it makes you feel and what you want you know right right the last thing we need is people being like oh my god did I like you know, eat emotionally one too many times. And now I feel like shit about myself. Like, you know, like, I just feel I just feel we need to take that conversation off of the table entirely. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there is no right or wrong way to eat period, including like binge eating your face off all day. Like, do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, that's what like, there's nothing morally or ethically wrong with that. That's your body, you get to do what you want with it. Again, let's talk about the question of like, how do you want to care for yourself? How do you want to, you know, you know, how do you want to develop coping mechanisms? How do you want to, you know, to your point, self care, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, having these sort of arbitrary definitions of, you know, what is an okay or not okay amount of emotional eating or whether or not emotional eating is okay or not okay is is not helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think we're, we're pathologizing something that is, you know, ultimately does come from this sort of, it's a very like diety. It can very easily be construed as sort of like a diety restrictive, um, behavior. But yeah, it's interesting. Like it sort of brings up this whole other topic, which is, you know, one of the things, lots of people, if, if I, one of the first things I ask my clients when they're like, Oh, I eat emotionally slash binge eat, or m- most people usually identify with one word over the other. I notice, like mm-hmm. most people like I binge eat, I binge eat, I binge eat. And the other person will be like, Oh, I, yeah, I eat my feelings. I eat my feelings. I mean, and these two, um, terms are like thrown around kind of, um, you know, like one for the other, don't really know what either of them means. And I always ask my clients, I'm like, well, what exactly do you mean by binge eating? What exactly do you mean by emotional eating? Like, how are you defining these things? And for the most part, like 99% of the time, people will identify binge eating versus emotional eating based on the amount of food mm-hmm. that's being consumed or, or based on some other like external like distinction or like line in the sand that they've drawn of like this is emotional eating because it looks like this and this is binge eating because it looks like this mm-hmm. um, and you know I always challenge you know I always challenge my clients to kind of like think about it a little bit differently because I think it's sort of helpful for um you know, these are just, this is just like one of the distinctions I give people to kind of like help them like figure out in their brain sort of like where they are and what they're dealing with. Like binge eating is a reaction to deprivation of some kind, whether that be physical, emotional, or otherwise. Whereas emotional eating is just eating your feelings, like period, end mm-hmm. of discussion. Like I want, I'm sad, I want a cookie. And when we start talking about motivations or like sort of defining like quote unquote dysfunctional behaviors by what's going on in our brains and our attitudes towards foods and how we're thinking about food, you know, rather than what the food behaviors actually look like on the ground, you know, I think that we can do a lot more for somebody um, as far as like helping them deal with, you know, their like dysfunctional eating or disordered eating. That's a really interesting point. So like, yeah, say more about the the binge eating part and how, you know, it's a response to deprivation because I think that's an interesting take that I definitely don't hear enough of in the eating disorder treatment world while I do hear about it more in the body positive health at every size world. So yeah. Well, first of all, before I talk about why binge eating is a reaction to deprivation, I will say that technically they're both reactions to deprivation and Mm -hmm. I'll explain why that is in a second. So the way I sort of see it or the way I delineate this, and again, this is not based on anything technical. This is just, you know, again, binge eating and emotional eating are also cultural constructs. And I've come up with my own definition that I think is most useful and helpful in helping people deal with these issues, right? Mm-hmm. So the way I think about emotional eating or the way I think about binge eating are a little bit different. The way I think about binge eating or the way I encourage my clients to think about binge eating is just purely straight up a reaction to deprivation, right? If I am eating something because I feel like I shouldn't eat it, because I feel like because I've been, you know, keeping myself from eating it. And I'm like, Oh, my God, like, I shouldn't eat the cookies. I shouldn't eat the cookies. Oh, my God, I just want to eat cookies, right? Like, if it's a reaction, if I'm literally reacting to deprivation, the way, you know, the metaphor I often give for binge eating is like, the farther you pull back a bow and a bow and arrow, the mm-hmm. farther it's going to fly in the other direction, the second you let go. And that so that's, sort of, yeah, and that's sort of like the ultimate metaphor for binge eating, right? And so, with binge eating, any, you know, whether it's like 
10 bags of cookies or like a, you know, one spoonful of peanut butter, right? If the, if the intention, right, if the motivation is like, oh my gosh, I want that, but I shouldn't have it. Or maybe you're actively letting yourself eat it. This is the thing that a lot of people also miss about binge eating is that deprivation does not necessarily have to do with whether or not you're physically consuming it, right? Like if you're sitting eating a jar of peanut butter, but you're like, oh my God, like I, this is going to like make me an unlovable pig. What the hell am I doing? Why am I eating this? Why can't I stop? Right. If you're hating yourself and self-loathing over the fact that you're eating peanut butter, that is in and of itself a form of deprivation by virtue of the fact that anytime you say to yourself, I shouldn't eat this, the implication is I should try not to do this tomorrow. Mm-hmm. better get it in now, you know, like better get it in now, like last supper mentality, right? Like anytime I am effectively like self-loathing or beating myself up or, you know, like shaming myself for eating something, I am effectively in last supper mentality in that moment, just by virtue of the fact that what I think I'm doing is wrong. Yes. And so, you know, that is, these are, I'm just giving you some examples of different types of deprivation that we rebel against. But ultimately, you know, the, the, the main idea stands that binge eating or how I personally define it, right, is binge eating is a reaction to some kind of deprivation, whether that be the deprivation of an actual physical traditional diet, like I'm sitting on my hands trying not to eat something, mm-hmm. right? And, and all I can think about is that something. Or it could even be I'm sitting on my hands trying not to eat emotionally, right? Like, <laughs> oh my God, sitting on my hands trying not to eat. I want to eat. I'm sad. I want to eat. But don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Right? right? And then like all of a sudden I'm like, screw it. I'm doing it. And then like, you know, what could have been like, you know, what may have been, I won't say could have, you know, what may have been like one cupcake when I'm sad to make myself feel better turns into like a giant Last Supper, you know, fest mm-hmm. because... I shouldn't be doing this. I'm clearly doing something wrong. I'm immediately in last supper mentality, right? And I hope when I say last supper mentality, that is kind of clear to everyone. I sort of assume that, you know, everyone who's listening to your podcast is like pretty um, on top of on top of this language, but I'll explain mm-hmm. it just in case. Yeah. Um, you, you know, last supper, last supper mentality is sort of, um, you know, this idea of, you know, diet starts tomorrow, better get it in now right? Like I'm going to, tomorrow's day one on whatever diet I'm going on. So today I'm just going to eat as much as I possibly can of all of the things that I'm not going to let myself have tomorrow. Right. Um, and so again, we can do this consciously, right? Like I'm conscious. Well, I think many of us have had the experience of doing this consciously, but this is actually something that also sub subconsciously happens whenever we are shaming ourselves around what we're eating, because anytime we are shaming ourselves for something that we're eating, anytime we feel badly about something we're eating, the subconscious implication is I should try not to do this tomorrow. Right. Like, so effectively any kind of shame or beating ourselves up or like, Oh my God, or like anxiety around something we're eating in many cases. And, uh, you know, we are actively putting ourselves in that last supper mentality. So, you know, my, my clients were like, Oh my gosh, I can't, I can't stop binging. Um, but you know, I'm not restricting, I'm not restricting, I'm not <laughs> restricting, but I can't stop binging. I guarantee you, you are restricting. It just might not be the kind of restriction that you think of as restriction, right? Like people mm-hmm. think restriction is, just like being on Atkins or going on Weight Watchers or counting calories or whatever. Like they think 
these very like tr- traditional technical terms of what restriction is. But restriction really truly is a state of mind, right? Diet mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a way of thinking about food, right? Like if you are shaming yourself for eating something, you are restricting, even if you're putting that thing in your mouth. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's such an important distinction to make, especially because clean eating and its variations, you know, its sort of subtler forms are now so pervasive in our culture. And that is just another form of restricting. That's another form of shaming yourself about food. And I see that a lot in clients. I see, you know, clients will say the same thing, like, I can't stop binging, but I don't think I'm restricting. Like, look at this day, you know, I, I ate like at all the meals right. and snacks. I, I right. can't understand. I wasn't hungry, you know? Right. Like, it's like I ate calories. How do you say I'm restricting? <laughs> right. Like, exactly. <laughs> but, in, and then it's like, well, okay, let's look at like, did you actually want this weird raw food bar right here? Or is was that, you know, a deprivation choice? Like, did you actually want right. this, you know, whatever meal from Instagram or would you rather have had a slice of pizza? Like that also is restricting. And that is, mm-hmm another way that people can sort of keep themselves in this mentality while, you know, under the guise of health, quote unquote. Right. There's so many different ways that people restrict without realizing it. And I think that that is actually the challenge for professionals Mm -hmm. who are working with, you know, women struggling with these issues is being able to figure out and uncover, you know, where people are sort of if you will, like secretly restricting or unconsciously restricting or not sure, you know, are dealing with diet mentality in some capacity that maybe they're not fully aware of or, you know, haven't fully uncovered or whatever. Um, And I think that that's really, you know, that's really the issue. You know, like Mm -hmm. people always say, you know, if if not binging were just a simple function of not dieting, people would be like, oh, that's so easy. I just won't diet. Mm -hmm. The issue is that it really is that simple. The problem is that not dieting is really hard. Yes. You know, like it actually is as simple as, you know, when you stop restricting, you will probably stop binging, right? When you stop interfering with your natural biological signals, your natural biological signals will just do their jobs that they're pretty good at doing on Mm -hmm. their own. The issue is that it's very hard to stop interfering with your food mentally physically, emotionally, or otherwise, because everyone around you is constantly telling you to interfere with your food, right? Like every Mm -hmm. time you have like a poor body image thought, like you are being triggered into interfering with your food, right? So, you know, I think that, you know, ultimately, you know, it is as, you know, when it comes to binge eating, it often really is as simple as stop restricting. The question is the hard part or the challenging part is what does it mean to not restrict how do I actually stop restricting in a diet culture? Yes, I that is so well said. And that is something that I harp on so much with clients to like the point where, you know, I almost don't really get into the food stuff or the emotional eating stuff until way later. Because when someone designates themselves an emotional eater, that's like a red flag to me usually that there is yeah. this stuff going on. So it's They're like restricting. We, we have to talk about the restricting. Yeah, we have to talk about yeah honoring your hunger in a real physical way as well as in an emotional psychological way like what are you hungry for and are you allowing yourself to have that or are you you know choosing a poor substitute if so that's restricting and that's setting you up to binge or setting you up to emotionally eat or whatever it is you call it you know oh totally well it's yeah it's so interesting the second somebody identifies as emotional eater I'm like oh well you're judging your food so you're Mm -hmm. definitely still restricting (laughs) (laughs) I know for a fact that you're restricting 
thing the second you call yourself an emotional eater because this the only people who call themselves emotional eater are people who are judging themselves critically for yes. what they eat. You know, like totally. I comes out of that sentiment by definition. <laughs> I one hundred percent agree, and I've actually like in my marketing stuff, I've avoided the term emotional eating and emotional eater, which I've gone back and forth so much about because I'm like, well, it would make me more Googleable, and people probably would find my stuff if they were searching for that. And these might be the, the exact people who need to hear it. And yet, I just can't get on board with that term. I don't want to be associated with that term because it is so, I mean, and it's, you know, for me, it's like putting it in the rear view for myself too, because I did identify as an emotional eater back when I was stuck in the diet mentality and in my eating disorder. And, you right. know, I don't want, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to be part of calling someone's problem right. emotional eating, you know, but it is, it is how people oh, self-identify totally. when they're in that moment. So it's a tough right. balance right. to strike, you know? Right. Which, as you know, we talked about this right before we went on the air. That's like the primary reason why I use that term and use the term binge eater is because that's how women identify themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's how women relate. You know, that's how people usually that is the terminology they use. I remember it's interesting because, you know, one of my taglines is I help women stop feeling crazy around food. Mm -hmm. And the reality of the situation is feeling crazy around food in and of itself is kind of a derogatory sentence. Mm -hmm. Like it's actually like, like sanity around food in and of itself is a social construct. And I remember, you know, once having a conversation with a body positive activist and we were having this discussion, I remember very clearly being like, you know what, the, I purposefully used the term. Um, I help women stop feeling crazy around food because that is how women identify themselves. And that's how it feels to a woman who is actively struggling and doesn't necessarily understand otherwise, right? Like that is how it feels, right? It feels like you hear someone be like, oh yeah, I do eat when I'm sad. And you're like, ah, oh, I'm an emotional eater. That's it, right? And so it's very interesting. Like that's so much, like I feel like so much of my um, writing is like designed to appeal to like let's, to, you know, to where women are in their journey. And that's how mm -hmm. they identify themselves. And I want them to know, like, I get it. Like, I understand how you're feeling. Like, I understand, you know, when you say you eat when you're sad, like, I understand I've been there. Like, I'm really, I'm there with you. I get mm -hmm. the, what you're saying when you say I'm an emotional eater. I get what you're saying when you say I'm a binge eater. I get what you're saying when you say you feel crazy, you know, all of these things. And it, it takes a while to take people through a process where they start to realize that all of these terms are actually being sort of unfairly placed upon them based on a culture that defines things as right and wrong in this sort of way that is um, oppressive to them, basically. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, what I will also say is emotional eating, right? If you wanted to take, you know, it's sort of like how people reclaim the word fat. Mm -hmm. there's another side of this conversation, which is like, I kind of want to reclaim the word emotional eating. Like I kind of want to claim the term, reclaim the term emotional eating a little bit to be like, yeah, like that's a coping mechanism that sometimes I use. Right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just that, like, that's all it is. Like I ate when I wasn't hungry. I ate when I was sad. And like, that's the end of the story period. Totally end of discussion. And so I think that that's also like really interesting and freeing because, you know, most people, you know, they, they can sort of put together like, oh, like I do eat more when I'm experiencing a feeling. My husband has the opposite experience. When he gets stressed out, he eats less 
Mm-hmm. And when I get stressed out, I eat more. How can you say that that's not real? Because it is real, right? Totally. What's interesting is that, and this is what I was, we were, I was just about to get to like a little while ago when I was talking about why both binge eating and emotional eating are directly correlated with restriction. Emotional eating, like I think of binge eating as like a direct, as I just said, it's a direct, it's a direct reaction to dieting or restriction of some kind. Like I'm actively sitting on my hands trying not to eat bread or I'm actively shaming myself for eat bread. And so therefore in that moment, I, my body goes into it, my brain and body go into a state of panic where I think the bread's going to be taken away from me. I'm in scarcity mentality and I therefore just like want to eat nothing but bread until I'm sick. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's sort of like binge eating or the way I sort of define it. On the flip side, emotional eating, and in this reclaimed way, right, emotional eating, I very much encourage my clients to reclaim the term emotional eating. It's not good or bad. It's not right or wrong. It's literally just the action of eating to soothe a feeling or distract from a feeling or whatever. Now, it's just a fact, right? This is actually in Health at Every Size. In Linda Bacon's book, there's like this teeny paragraph in Linda Bacon's book. And I actually told Linda, I had a conversation with Linda over the phone where we talked about this. There's like two lines in this Health at Every Size book. And I remember reading this paragraph in Health at Every Size and thinking, oh my God, that's like the two sentences that should get like a Pulitzer Prize for like healing disordered eating. Oh, wow. Um, There's like two lines in the book where she just casually references, like no big deal, casually references that when she looked at um, people who are quote unquote restrained eaters and people who are non-restrained eaters, so meaning people with a history of dieting deprivation and people not with a history of dieting and deprivation, the people with a history of restrained eating tended to eat more when under emotional duress Yes, and when People with an unrestrained history, meaning they no history of dieting to speak of, really, like, quote, unquote, like, you know, people call them, quote, normal eaters or naturally, naturally thin people or whatever, although a lot of them aren't thin, but like, whatever, you know, like, quote, unquote, normal eaters who, you know, theoretically don't struggle with this stuff and, you know, haven't dieted, basically people who don't have a history of dieting restriction tend to lose their appetites and turn away from food when they're stressed out or anxious. Mm-hmm. That's, just a, that's just an observation, right? Like no opinion there, no theory. It's just a factual observation. Yeah. We, when people diet, they tend to turn towards food more when they're under emotional duress. People who don't diet tend not to, mm-hmm. period. That's yep. it. She didn't give any specific explanation for why this is the case. She didn't pose any like, you know, crazy theories for like why, the, why, you know, some explanation of this. That's just the facts. That's just what we know. What we know is that people who diet tend to eat emotionally more mm-hmm. and don't tend not to like literally. So and cool. I say emotionally, I mean, literally like having the urge, right? Like they right. just tend to, to, to turn towards food more often. Now I can think, and we could probably brainstorm a million reasons why this might be the case, right? Like mm-hmm. evolutionary biology, like scarcity mentality, like, like, you know, making food more comfortable. I mean, mm-hmm. right. Like if you think like food, if food is something that keeps us alive and when we're under anxiety, you know, we, and like our background is, Oh my God, the food's being taken away. The food's being taken away. That in and of itself is going to make food feel safe. Yeah. Right. So like, therefore we are going to potentially use it as a comfort mechanism. Again, these are all theories. These, this is where things get like opinion based, but the fact remains that dieters basically eat emotionally and non-dieters do not. Yes. Now, in reality, I have never in my life met a person without a diet history who is identified as emotional eater. Me ever. Neither. Yet, 
emotional eaters are running around thinking that it's them, thinking that this is just the way they were born, they're missing a chip. <laughs> Actually, food addicts do this more, right? When people identify as being food addicts. Oh, yes. They identify as like, I have this chemical, something is chemically wrong with me, right? Like I have a chemical allergy. This is like a big thing that I hear about a lot from mm-hmm. people who do my work. They're like, oh, I really enjoy your book. But like, what do you do about the chemical allergy that I have <sighs> to show you know, nope. and, and this has been posed as as a as a reason for their feelings of being out of control around certain foods, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a very compelling it's a very compelling reason to pose to somebody who is already predisposed towards diet culture and already predisposed towards hating their body and already predisposed by definition already predisposed towards dieting because as we know, the only people who eat emotionally basically are people with dieting histories, right? Mm-hmm. On a regular basis or who identify as such. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, yeah. So the food addiction conversation is one I could like have all day, but yeah, but I'll, I'll just pause there for a moment. <laughs> I love that. I, yeah, no, I totally want to get into food addiction. I, um, just gonna like underline and highlight the part about emotional eating and diet, you know, restrained eating history. I actually was, I don't know if I mentioned this in the podcast we did before, but I've, I probably said it on this podcast at some <laughs> point at, in 2010, I started working on a book proposal about like a cultural history of emotional eating. And I was digging into all this research showing exactly that, that, you know, and they had done this research in like the 80s and 90s and early aughts that was looking at restrained eaters versus non-restrained eaters in their, you know, self-defined emotional eating, um, you know, styles. And exactly that, like the dieters, you know, dieters ate more emotionally and non-dieters turned away from food in times of great emotion. And it's funny because in that time, I was still in the last phases of my recovery and Mm -hmm. was still the reason I was interested in that and had that idea of was because I felt like I was an emotional eater and I had, you know, sort of identified with that for a while. So I, my, like, conclusion of that book and I never I ended up actually sort of mining a lot of the ideas and turning them into this podcast and I I don't know if I'll ever go back to that book idea or if it's going to morph and evolve or whatever but um, you know the conclusion of that at first was like there is a right way to eat emotionally and it's knowing your farmer and knowing where the food comes from and like all this stuff that was so popular, you know, at the time and that became sort of the genesis of the clean eating movement. And I look back at it now and I'm like, thank God I did not write that book because, you know, that's exactly not what it's supposed to be. That's like that, you know, it was just sort of transitioning into more. (laughs) Yeah. It was transitioning into orthorexia really. It was kind of, you know, like, Right. right. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, I mean, really the, the solution is, like you said, I think destigmatizing the concept of emotional eating and not making it, uh, you know, not making it a bad thing. Also not glorifying it as a good thing or anything in between just kind of like neutral is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a a coping mechanism, period. Right. And it's something that we do. coping mechanism that more often than not, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say like, it's more often than not a coping mechanism specifically that dieters tend towards. Right. So You know, I think I think that's just so critical and key, you know, is this idea is like really understanding that like, yeah, like the more food is this like special treasure that you put up on the pedestal because you're sitting on your hands trying not to eat it, 
the more likely you are going to reach for it in times of emotional duress. And that's just a factual thing, right? Like mm-hmm. that's just, that just is what it is, right? Like, um, it's not, there's no morality here. There's not nothing you're doing wrong necessarily. Mm-hmm. That's just one of the multiple consequences of dieting, no matter how you slice it, period. Exactly. And to sort of, you know, turn away from that and say, oh, well, either, you know, my my argument in that book proposal was like, maybe you're not eating emotionally in the right way, you know, and like, maybe you're not basically, it's like, maybe you're not on the right diet without calling it right. a diet, you know, that right, I think right. is the, the solution, quote unquote, that many people fall into, because they're not ready to step fully outside the diet paradigm and that mentality of, you know, you always have to be restricting something and then emotional eating is the, is the backlash or the response to that versus it's so hard to give up control. Give up. <laughs> I know so, it is. I know. It's so hard for people. I mean, it's so hard for you people know. in life, period. Like oh, not yeah. food, right? Like this is like a major spiritual concept. Like yep. this is huge, 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 huge. Like the reason, and again, we talked about this right before we went on the air. It's like the reason, you know, the sort of nexus point between like where the sort of social oppression of dieting sort of becomes this like therapeutic quote addiction or like things that people are using for mental health control, right? People mm-hmm. that people are using as a coping mechanism, et cetera, you know, is this idea of, you know, is really, um, a compulsion of humans towards wanting to control the outcomes of their lives. And for women in particular, you know, food and weight is such a tempting way to try to do that because of two factors. One, you know, I mean, well, the primary factor being that we are literally told every day that if I lose weight, I will get more love. Mm-hmm. I will, you know, increase my life satisfaction. I will, you know, rainbows and unicorns will pop out of the sky, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, in a, in a, in, if you think about like natural, just like human psychology, I think it's very human to want to control things, right? Like this is why religion exists. This is why, you know, all self-help exists is because it's very human and natural to constantly be wanting to try to control. That's like our animal instinct brain coming into play. Like don't die, you know, try to, you know, get the best life that you possibly can. It's very tempting to want to do that. And the reality is that there are so many things in this world that are outside of our control. You know, things like how people feeling about us being like number one, right? Like the love that we get being number one thing that we can't control. Yet we're told, well, if I just, if I just lost weight, I could control how this person feels about me, Mm -hmm. right? If I just lost weight, like this guy would want to date me, or if I just lost weight, like everyone would respect me at work, or if I just lost weight, you know, whatever. And so, you know, particularly for women who get this message, like the heaviest and the hardest, I think men get this message in other ways, like men are being told, like, you know, if you're rich enough, or if mm-hmm. you're this enough, and to some extent, if you're thin enough, but for women in particular, it's like, thinness or the pursuit of thinness feels like the greatest currency to getting the life of your dreams. And, you know, it's, it's highly delusional for multiple various reasons. One being dieting doesn't work all that well. And two being, you know, even if you can successfully diet, like, trust me, like that guy might not date you for other reasons. Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. But, um, you know, I think that it is, you know, when people talk about food being the new religion, you know, if you think about religion as an antidote to this sort of like animal instinctive drive to try to control things, which I think in many ways it is, that's just yet another example of food being the new religion. It's like the new way that we try to like control our mortality, the new way we try to control, 
you know, our circumstances around us. It's like, if I can just get thin, I never understood, you know, people used to talk about, oh, eating disorders are all about control. And I never got that when I was in treatment. Like, I was like, what do you mean? Like, I don't get it. Like, I'm a binge eater. I'm clearly out of control. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> right, right. And like, at some point, once I realized that binge eating, of course, is really about restriction, at some point, I really, I like kind of got this, I was like, oh, I get it. I was like, I think that becoming thinner will make everything else around me go my way. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I think that by becoming thinner, I will, every man will want to date me. I think that by th becoming thinner, my mother will somehow like respect me more and I will have more professional success and, mm -hmm. you know, dot, 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 fill in the blank. And, and like it, like all of a sudden made sense. I was like, oh, this is not actually about food or weight. This is about me trying to control the outcome of my life yes. through this sort of religious pursuit. Um, you know, so true. And I think, yeah, that is exactly why we have religion in the first place. And that's why we have all these things that take the place of it. And food yep. is sort of the number one in our society today. And I will say, you know, personal disclosure that like, since I've put to rest the concerns about food in my body, it's popped up in other ways, it's popped up in other areas of my life. Yes. And, you know, it's a constant practice of managing it. Like, I didn't yeah. think that it was you know, adhering to my professional success in quite the degree that it is, you know, this desire to control things has really mm -hmm. um, taken hold of like whatever degree of success I've had with the podcast and my business. And so, yeah. you know, I uh, there's been some new body positive podcasts coming on the scene lately and I have felt threatened. I will I will share that. I like and mm -hmm. I've shared that with the with the people who do them. I I have felt threatened at times because I didn't realize like it's kind of transferred, you know, this idea of like yeah. I can be immortal basically. I can keep myself from ever having to face pain by just being successful enough, you know, yeah. has really started to live in this world of like, you know, the internet and likes and followers and download numbers and like all this fucking bullshit. It's total bullshit, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I'm yeah. grateful for my recovery process and all the therapy I've been in that I can see that. And like yep. all the Buddhist stuff that I've read and, you know, the body positive mm -hmm. movement and how it sort of reinforces this because yeah, it's like, you know, none of that really matters. Ultimately, none of it is going to keep me safe from yeah. pain and, you know, losing the people I love or the things that I love in life. And like, that is just life and it sucks and it's hard, you know, but yeah. also there are great things about life that, you know, I need to be fully present for. And I think sort of looking to something outside of you to control the painful things and the bad things actually takes you away also from being present for the good things. Yes. So, you know, really yeah. giving up control again and again, I think is such a worthwhile practice. And, you know, to those of you listening who've like gone through a lot of it with food and body, if you feel that coming up in other areas of your life, like you're not alone. It's, it's, a, it's part of the human condition, I think. Yeah, you'll always be doing it. I think that you just hit the nail on the head. I think that was incredibly well put. I mean, ultimately, I think that, you know, the the things that we learn when we're going through this food issue situation, right? Everything, I mean, I will say for myself personally, every single thing that I teach around food basically is applicable to all of life. <laughs> um, there is no way, I mean, I remember I 
definitely went through that personally, I will say with my business, I went into like major like quote workaholic mode with business. And I was really, really allowing my work to dictate my self esteem, just like I used to let my food or my weight dictate my self esteem. It was the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And it was so uncomfortable. And it really, you know, for lack of a better term, right, like affected my sanity, you know, it took away from my sanity in my working environment, I felt crazy around work, you know, and um, I remember like going through a process of like being like, okay, I have to like stop following these people, just like the media diet with with Mm. um, with food and body stuff. I literally did the same thing with work. I was like, I need to I need to unfollow these people. I need to let go. I was like, you know, somebody doesn't want to work with me. Fine. You know, like I like there's just so much surrender that had to happen for me personally in my business. I just remember going through that really, really hard, like a year and a half ago, like Mm -hmm. I kind of came to a boiling point. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I really need to surrender in my career. And then like pretty much immediately thereafter, I started dealing with the exact same issues in my relationship. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then it was, and then it was, I'm crazy around men. And then it was like, you know, and then it was like, it was like, again, this like process of surrender. And I realized like, this is never going to end. Mm -hmm. Like this is, this is what spiritual practice is. Spiritual practice is the noticing the urge to try to control things coming up because it will, because you're a human and that's what your animal instinct brain just does to you, mm-hmm. right? Because it's trying to, you're, you're instinctive. What is it called? Like the frontal cortex. I don't know. There's yeah, like a term. The prefrontal right? cortex. Like, yeah. The prefrontal cortex just like rearing up, like trying to protect you. And it's just coming up and you're, that desire to control is just going to come up. And then ultimately 99% of the time, unless you're like, you know, faced with like a lion roaring or like, you know, a green light in front of you, 99% of the time, it's not going to be functional because you're, it's going to be, you're going to be trying to control something that ultimately is not controllable, like other people's opinions of you or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the, the, what spiritual practice, what I'm learning is what spiritual practice is, is acknowledging and observing that desire to control coming up and practicing letting it go, yes. practicing. And that's just, I, I, I realize now that that will never not be my life. Like for the rest of my life, I will have to do that practice because for the rest of my life, that urge to control will come up in some way. Mm-hmm. And the, the goal is let it go, right? Like I, t- I t- you know, I don't have kids yet. But I'm sure this will come up for me when I have kids, if I have kids, because Mm -hmm. every parent I know talks about this, you know, or like, (laughs) you know, I just, it's like every major thing in life, this is going to come up, even in the little things in life. It's just, we don't notice the little things as much because they're like over in five seconds. Mm -hmm. But, you know, ultimately that is what life is. It's just a series of, you know, prefrontal cortex sparking up, trying to control something for the sake of your safety. And then you realizing like, oh, this is happening. And in this particular instance, 99% of the time, it's not actually functional for me to try to control this. Got to let it go. Mm-hmm. And, so that's awesome. and that's yeah. life. Yeah. I think that's yeah. like, it's so powerful to really start practicing that and to, to like know that at least, you know, and I think it's one thing to know it intellectually and another thing to like put it into practice in the moment. That's certainly like a... A yeah. challenge for anyone but you know I think if you just keep making the effort you know like mm-hmm. I love Tara Brock she's like she's a good one she's, she's a great teacher she's a great teacher yeah she's a spiritual teacher and podcaster if you know anybody doesn't know her should definitely check her out but um you know sometimes I'll I'll listen to her podcast and like be so not engaged and so not doing what she's 
you know, talking about like she's she's giving this, you know, beautiful meditation or this talk about letting go. And I'm like walking around listening to the podcast being like, oh, and I got to do this and I got to respond to this person. And I, oh, my God, this part of my business needs more attention. It's like, OK, well, that that is what it is, too. You know, I used to beat myself up over that and be like, I can't even fucking meditate right or I can't even like be present right. with the thing that's supposed to be helping me. And it's like also right. that, you know, that right. is also part of it. Right, like so. surrender, even your ability to surrender. Mm-hmm. Yep, because that prefrontal cortex is just going to do its thing sometimes. Yeah, it's just a it's just a relic of you know how our brains are designed, and that's okay. Like that's right. it's all right. okay. Like, we used to be reptiles, like at one point or something, yep. or like fish. I don't know. Yeah, something <laughs> I think like we're that. Fish. Yeah, <laughs> reptile brain. I don't know. Yeah. And yeah, now it's like this, our brain just got sort of built on top of like new lumps of clay just kept being added. And so they kind of don't all function together sometimes, you know, it takes a while for the messages from one part to get to the other parts. And so it's like that. Totally. That's all right, too. Right. And there is that 1% of the time, there is that teeny tiny 1% of the time where it's functional to try to control things. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's real. Sure. That is helpful to people. It's just you know, it's, it's often also not. Mm -hmm. And in the culture in which we live, and this is again, where it starts to get social and cultural again, the culture in which we live is very meritocratic, very like you Mm -hmm. can do it, you know, you're in control, blah, 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 right. And so, you know, because of the culture in which we live, we focus a hell of a lot more on this idea of, yeah, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. And we, and we tend to ignore or we tend to overlook the things that actually maybe we need to let go of and maybe that we can't do, you know, mm-hmm. or like the things that, you know, the, the ways in which we are not God. Totally. And, you know, I think that that is, you know, again, it, it's, it's, it's no, um, criticism of, you know, the, those times when that prefrontal cortex or that, you know, you know, desire to make something happen is a, is a positive things in our lives lives. But I think we, we spend so much time thinking about all the things that we can do and we don't spend enough time thinking about the things that we need to let go. Totally. Um, And yeah, there's so much in our lives that pushes us, you know, in that direction. Like a lot of people have bosses and I have certainly had bosses in the past that were, you know, just expected way too much of people, expected people to be always on, expected people to be, um, you know, just adding things to their to-do list endlessly and getting them done quicker than humanly possible you know (laughs) and I I struggle to not be that kind of boss to myself but I have an awareness at least that like hey remember when this person expected that of you and you burned out you know like don't don't do that to yourself you know yeah yeah oh my gosh yes I I, totally understand (laughs) and I think we have the power to say no and to define our boundaries like more than we realize which I spoke a lot about in another episode called intuitive eating intuitive everything where like you know my guest Mm -hmm. and I were talking about the fact that once you kind of start tuning into your intuition around food it really spills over into everything in your life and if you start thinking about self-care with food and you know how to like honor your emotions with food or how to have boundaries and you know all these different things regarding your relationship with food it's like you can't unsee it you can't put the genie back in the bottle you know right right yet another example of like I think like the true the most 
true healing around food, everything that you will learn that actually, you know, creates like quote results for you in healing your relationship with food really is about all of life, right? Mm -hmm. Like these are, these are greater spiritual principles, if you will, or mental health principles or whatever you want to call them that we're applying to food there. It's really not different than the rest of your life. You know, like, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, that's actually a Janine Roth quote, you know, Janine Roth was said, you know, how you eat is how you do everything, you know, or something along those lines. And I think that that's so true. Um, I, I feel like I learn that more and more as time goes on. Um, but certainly everything that I have ever learned to help me change my relationship with food has helped me change my relationship in like pretty much every other piece of life. Like, you know, intuition being like step one, radical acceptance being like Mm -hmm. a huge other piece of this pie. Oh yeah. I, yeah, for me too, they, they couldn't have happened you know, they had to happen together or they, yeah. like one couldn't have happened without the other and I would have recovered, you know, it's right. Yeah. Right. It was, I mean, actually it. I sort of backed into intuitive eating through radical acceptance. Cause I worked with a therapist when I was in my sort of later stages of disordered eating where like we finally started talking about the food stuff. Cause no other freaking therapist had talked with me about it when I, you know, threw out a little breadcrumb or something like I just I felt like I wasn't uh sort of met with the right response and then I finally found a therapist who who was able to provide that and like we started talking about all the underlying stuff without even having to address the food at first you know and it just I I sort of came to it through this like spiritual path so you know Mm -hmm. I think it's possible to like get into it that way too where you know it's it's also possible for that to get twisted into something really diety so I think you gotta watch that like I just was talking with some people the other day about a book called the self-compassion diet which like no no fuck no like no (laughs) that's like the love yourself to lose weight diet yes exactly we almost talked about but like Mm -hmm. I'm sure many of you have heard of this it's like this idea of like well once I love myself I will, you know, somehow my food will like magically be perfect because I'll be like self-caring so amazingly <laughs> right. and I'll lose weight. Right. Yay! You know, like, we. I think a lot of people who come to my website, I know that a lot of my personal clients, a lot of my readers, a lot of my subscribers, definitely, definitely, you know, they come to me and they read my stuff. And I think that it's very natural, you know, I don't even blame them. It's very natural Mm -hmm. for them to come. And, you know, I think the first thing they think is, oh my gosh, maybe if I, you know, love myself, like, you know, Isabel says, uh, you know, I'll stop binge eating and I'll lose weight. Wee! Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's like, you know, it's, it's very, um, common. And I'm very, I'm very quick to correct these, these assumptions when I hear them. And it's funny now clients often come to me and they're like, okay, I just want to know, I just want you to know full disclosure. I'm having these thoughts, oh, but, yeah. I, but I, like, I'm aware of it. And like, I know that like, this is something to be worked on, you know? <laughs> Same here, actually. I (laughs) feel like I've done so much like tweaking of my marketing language and screening of my clients that, you know, the ones who come in the door know my philosophy already. And then they're like, well, I'm still, to be honest, I'm still kind of wishing I would lose weight, but I know that that's not, you know, what this is about. And it's like, okay, cool. You know, we can work with that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, to be fair, if there wasn't a piece of them that didn't want to lose weight, they wouldn't be seeing us. Exactly. Like, obviously. Like, that's another thing that my clients said was they'll be like, it's like, is it, is it okay? Like there is this like part of me that like, you know, so on, so on, you know, is that okay? And I'm like, that's why you're here. Mm-hmm. Like if you really truly were just like, I, you know, I don't want to lose weight. My body's cool the way it is. And like really bought that. Like we wouldn't be having this conversation because <laughs> right. you wouldn't have a food problem. Like your food yep. would be fine. Like if that was really how you felt, your food would be fine and we wouldn't be on the phone. Yeah. So, um, so true. Know. 
Um, That's true. It's like so, it's kind of the yeah. it's it's the engine in a way of the early right. stages of, of working with someone is like, of course, that's why they're they're right. feeling all these feelings about food. So, yeah, like everybody, right. of course, is going to have that, right. you know, right. in, in their mind to some degree. It's right. just, you know, I mean, I think it's it's tricky when like someone you markets themselves as the solution to someone's, you know, concerns about weight and sort of colludes with that then that's a problem but like well not I mean in my mind it's like it's not even problematic it's just literally straight up unethical because mm-hmm. it's like lying basically like I'm sorry but like the yeah. lose the love yourself to lose weight method is not a thing like that's no. no like you know like it's just straight up like predatory um totally um you know aside from the fact that you're like you know screwing with these people's heads and like making them believe something that like what you know is harmful to them or like you know again like to your point like colluding in their diet mentality i think even greater than that even a step beyond that like it's just unethical Mm -hmm. um because it's just not you know it's just it's 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 a it's it's lying you know like it's not true like you're selling something that you can't actually like prove or have any evidence of yeah it's um, quackery it's it's, yeah, it's quackery. quackery at this point yes yeah. we yeah, have yeah, so yeah. much evidence i mean everybody talks a big game about evidence-based medicine you know do- like right. medical doctors right. and psychiatrists and all this stuff it's like evidence-based medicine evidence-based medicine right. okay if you want to f- really right. practice evidence-based medicine right. don't tell people to lose weight don't tell people to cut sugar don't tell people to right. do right. all these crazy fucking things that have no None of this is behind them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, um, it's so interesting, but yeah, the, the, I think you know the love yourself to lose. Yeah. So aside from that sort of like the the quackery point, I mean, I think that the 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 love yourself to lose weight diet. Is, I mean, is obviously is very popular and very problematic. Um, mm-hmm. But oh, to get, I was going to say, I was like, where was I going with this? When people come and they're like, "There's this part of me that still wants to lose weight." Like the first thing I always say to them is like, "Well, yeah, duh. Like that's why you're here. Like mm-hmm. if that wasn't where you were, we wouldn't be together." we wouldn't be working on this together the question is like is there a part of you that is like willing to work towards body positivity and like work towards body acceptance because you can intellectually even if there's like emotional disconnect you intellectually understand why this is driving all of these other issues with food and all this other unhappiness and misery that you're facing right if you can Mm -hmm. intellectually put it together and be like okay this is really hard for me I'm emotionally struggling with this. There's a part of me that wants to be thin so badly because of, you know, X, Y, Z, a million reasons that, that are, are rampant in the culture that we have, that we Mm. live in, you know, but there's, but you can intellectually wrap your brain around why this, you know, obsessive desire to be thin is actually at the root of your problem. If you can intellectually understand that we can do work. Mm Mm-hmm period, period, you know? And that's sort of like where I'm at, you know, with taking on new clients is like, if you can intellectually wrap your brain around it, if you buy what I'm saying, that this is the root of your problem, right? Uh, To some extent. And beyond that, the roots may even go into deeper stuff like, well, what exactly are you trying to control by pursuit of thinness? Is it, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it might be, relationship, status, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, like if you can just start with, I am, I intellectually, you know, even if not like fully in my heart or whatever, I intellectually understand that this is, you know, not serving me. This belief system around weight is not serving me. This body image struggle that I have is not serving me. It's actually propelling me into misery. That's, that's enough. Like, Mm -hmm. that's great. Like then you, you are in a good position to do work. Um, Totally. As opposed to somebody who's like, you know what, like, but like, I still want to pursue dieting, you know, like, that's like a kind of a different, it's a different stage. It's Mm -hmm. like a different phase to be in versus like, okay, I still want to lose weight. This is really hard for me. I look at my body and I hate it. But like, 
I under, I intellectually understand that that's the root of my problem and I want to work on it. Yep. Uh, I yeah. I find that so. that's so much more rewarding to work with people in that stage because I think as a, a, you know, fully body positive person, it's like, I just can't anymore sort of, you know, sit with the, um, the, the, the diet mentality personified, you know, right. like, well, you don't, it's hard to do work with somebody who doesn't want to do work, yeah. you know? And I think yeah. that, I think that that's really the thing is like, if you're still committed to dieting, if you're still committed to screwing around with your food, you're probably not going to do the body positive work that needs mm-hmm. to be done. Yeah. Off, generally speaking, people are not doing their most productive or honest or earnest body image work whilst still actively pursuing traditional diets. Now, I'm not talking about diet mentality, right? Like I think that we all, you know, again, we live in diet culture. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you will you may be struggling with diet mentality and that's one of the things we're going to work on together, or, you know, sure, et cetera. Yeah. But like if you are actively pursuing dieting, you know, my guess is that you're also probably not going to be doing the most earnest, honest body image work that you can be doing. You know, Mm -hmm. if you're actively pursuing traditional diets and actively pursuing a desire to control, if you're actively trying to control your weight, basically, Mm -hmm. you're probably not doing the most earnest, honest body image work that you could be by definition. Totally. So true. So and yeah. I think that might be why the rates of, of success, I mean, one of the reasons that the rates of success at, uh, you know, in certain practices or eating disorder treatment centers or whatever are low because, A, you know, the people who are there are not fully committed to that yet because they are yep. they have an eating disorder and they've been kind of right. booted into the, the facility, you know, yeah, by someone. Right. Like, they don't want to be there necessarily of their own free right. like will. Like, their parents or, sent them there or whatever. Exactly. Or even if they do want help, it's like they want help in a very limited way, which I was totally there, too. It was yes. like, I want you to help me stop the binging, but I want to keep all this other stuff, you know? Oh, that was me for years. Yeah. For years, I was in clinical inpatient treatment being like, teach me how to control myself around food. But mm-hmm. like, you know, what's interesting, though, when I was in clinical treatment, like no one actively and this is something I think I've probably even talked about on my previous podcast with you. No one actively sat me down and explained to me that I was binging because of the restriction. Like no one mm-hmm. said that. Like people were like, oh, you have, a, you know, you have an eating disorder. You got to like eat everything on your meal plan or we're going to like literally like give you a black, like a, like a black star, you know, like that, that was the treatment style. I mean, I think that's how a lot of clinical inpatient, uh, you know, treatment centers work. And, and, and that is, you know, I always think of those kinds of environments as like, they just care about keeping you alive at that mm-hmm. point. Like they just want you physically to stay alive at that point. Um, there it's like, it's like the, the level of psychological work that is being done at that point is like so minor, you know, mm-hmm. like it's just like, they're literally just like, we don't, we want to keep you from dying of right. starvation right now. And that's like what's happening at that level at that, like immediate level of, of um, care in a lot of instances, mm-hmm. or at least that was my that was my experience. And I know, you know, I've heard that that's been the experience of other, you know, clients of mine. Definitely. Um, but yeah, but I always think, you know, like there are phases, right. Of recovery, multiple phases of recovery. And like, I think that you and I, you know, once you're getting into like the body positivity stuff, like really earnestly, and you've given up trying to control, right. Like trying mm-hmm. being the operative word. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, <laughs> Um, you know, once you've given up trying to control or once you've given up dieting as such, which is how I would define dieting in most instances, um, you know, 
and you're really open to doing body image work, it's just like, it's just a whole nother, that's like level three, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's just like a whole different level of, you know, work that you can do. That's like the advanced work. That's like the work that's like the most, that's like, that's like where the freedom comes. Like the freedom happens at that level. Like you got to get to level three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because levels one and two kind of suck and it's a slog and you're not getting a a huge payoff because the body image stuff is still, you know, in a lot of cases rearing its head even more so at those levels. So it's like, Yeah, to sort of push forward anyway and know that you will get to a place where you're doing the deeper body image work and you're, you know, and right. really, like, I think um, the Be Nourish people, Hillary uh, Knavy and Dana Sturdivant, who are going to be guests on the podcast soon. Um, oh, good. Yeah, yeah, they're so cool. And they, they have said, you know, like, body image work is really body acceptance work, you know, that's like, yeah, totally. because, you know, there's so many therapists and dietitians and treatment centers and stuff that sort of are like, oh, we have to keep working on body image. We've got who's going to, you know, who on the team is going to work on body image with this person. And like that, no, you know, their point is like, nobody wants to do that. And it kind of gets kicked around from team member to team member. And it, it like always oh, gets sort of kicked down the road, you know? And the reason they say is because, you know, a lot of providers and clinicians don't have that like education education and haven't yeah yeah, haven't done the work themselves you know right right they don't know how to do it exactly and don't (laughs) and aren't aren't, you know body positive and size accepting and health at every size oriented enough to be able to truly say to someone like look it's okay if you're fat it's okay wherever your body ends up like we're gonna help you accept it you know and i know this is painful and you know this is hard and we're gonna have to do a lot of work to like dismantle all of the feelings or you know all the the things that diet culture has planted in your head that are making you have these really negative feelings about your body right but like but like do that you know right like not accepting is not helping you clearly Mm -hmm. like it's like like, you know i remember somebody you know it's like one of the very in my like introductory video series and stop fighting food i'm like look like shame is not serving is it serving you in any way no so let's Mm -hmm. like deal let's like eliminate that right like that's a thing that needs to go it's not helping you it's so funny you know we talk about this all the time it's like people they hold on. I know that this is something common of women who, you know, first come to my website. It's like they're holding on to shame because they think that it is functional, right? Like they mm-hmm. think that it's motivating. They think that it is, you know, a thing that is keeping them safe from the evils and terrors of fatness. Um, right. You know, and like ultimately all they're doing is hurting themselves and like and like ruining their lives, you know? Mm-hmm. And so anyway, that's kind of a side note, but. No, totally. It's I've I've heard that from a lot of people too. That you know, if I truly give up this body shame and start accepting my body, then I have to give up the dream of thinness and all that comes with that. You know, even right, if, right, right. even if they can sort of intellectually understand that that's flawed, like there's still this reluctance to give it up because there's a glimmer of hope that maybe they could one day achieve one day a diet will work yeah one day dieting will be functional for them one day they'll like cash in on they'll find the perfect thing the Mm -hmm. diet or way or they'll figure out how to quote unquote control themselves and you know they'll get all the the unicorns and rainbows will pop out of the sky for them you know as diet culture is telling them it will I mean I think that that's one of the hardest things also about this whole issue is that we live in a world where literally everyone around you is constantly supporting and reinforcing your belief that it is functional to try to control your weight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like 
it's functional and beneficial. And if you're not doing it, there's something wrong with you. If you're not dieting, there's something wrong with you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, being able to have a different opinion is really, really hard. I mean, I think that that's just real. I think that that there's no way of making that unhard, which is why, mm-hmm. you know, developing body positive community, whether that be on the internet or anywhere else is so important, even if that's just, you know, the social media that you're following or the podcast that you're listening to or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like having some sort of, you know, surrounding yourself with body positive culture is so much is such a big part of the game because so much of our ability to perceive things as negative or positive has is is so heavily affected by culture like mm-hmm. so funny when you're talking about like it's really about you know body image work is really about body acceptance it's like i always think about there's sort of like two levels body acceptance being first the first and like the most primary, like first off, like just acknowledge that like, this is the body you have today. Like we have no idea what you're going to look like tomorrow. Today, this is the body you have. Like tomorrow you could get hit by a car. Like today, (laughs) this is the body you have. How are you going to deal with that? Like, can you actually like live in it today and accept it for what it is today? Because today is really all you have going back to the sort of like Buddhist philosophy, if Mm -hmm. you will. Right. And so acceptance being really key, I think more advanced, I think on like more advanced body image work. And I talk about this, like with people like Virgie Tovar is like really good with this conversation. It was like even more advanced body image work is like, okay, I've gotten to the point where I like accept it. Like I accept my body the way I accept that the sky is blue. Like it's not changing or like, at least I'm not going to change it through willpower. Like it's going to be what it's going to be. If it changes, that'll be what that's going to be. But like, I accept it for what it is today. Right. Um, I think advanced body image work, though, could theoretically even go beyond into like, okay, well, so if I accept that there's eight ounces of water in the jar, can I actually shift my perception from glass empty to glass full? Mm -hmm. You know, can I actually start once you have you have to have acceptance first, like before you can make a decision about or before you can have a perception shift from thinking the glass is half empty to half full. You first have to acknowledge there's eight ounces of the water in the glass either way. Mm -hmm. Right. And then it becomes about like what perception or what like imaginary, you know, tale or narrative do I want to attach to this fact that there's eight ounces of water in the glass? Mm -hmm. I think we can do the same thing with body image. It's like body image level one is like, okay, my body is what my body is. Like I fundamentally accept that today this is what my body looks like today. I'm not, there's nothing, nothing's happening with that. Like today, this is just what it is. And today I want to live my best life because tomorrow I could get hit by a car. So today I accept my body for what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, level two is like, okay, I accept it. Can I actually work towards changing my perception of it from being this like horrible, shitty, awful thing that like it makes me like ugly and gross and, you know, whatever other, you know, biases you may have around fat or your body in general, mm-hmm. you know, and actually transition it into like something else like, ooh, like I got a little jiggle, like I'm cute, you yeah. know, like, you know, like whatever, like can I, can I play imaginary play pretend in a different way. Like instead of like imagining that I'm a witch, can I imagine that I'm a princess? It's imaginary either way. Like both are imaginary. Like Mm. it's fundamentally imaginary either way. That's what perception is. It's literally a fundamental, it's like a figment of your imagination. The question is once you accept the fact of that your body just is what it is today, you know, then we can start to play around with perception and perception is 
arguably more difficult. It's much, it's, it, I think it's harder psychologically in many ways, <laughs> not mm-hmm. to say that acceptance is easy because that's certainly not, but it's just, again, we're sort of just breaking down like levels to body image work mm-hmm. that I think it's just sort of interesting to think about. So interesting. Yeah. That's a great point too, that, you know, sort of from, accepting your body as being a certain size and is what it is and you can't change it to like and that is beautiful and unique because all bodies are beautiful and unique and what what do I like about my body and what do I appreciate about my body and others bodies who are you know different and beautiful in their own way and they're like I don't compare myself to them negatively but I can appreciate them too you know like that stuff is is really, I think, important for sort of keeping it going, you know? Yeah. And the perception stuff is what's so heavily influenced by culture. Mm -hmm. And that's why body positive culture and just like surrounding yourself with as much body positive media, body positive ideas, like reading people like Virgie Tovar or whoever. Mm -hmm. That's why that's so important is because it sort of sparks your imagination for a different, to look at bodies in a different way than, than the sort of body negative culture is telling you to look. Absolutely. Have you seen the refinery 29's new, um, 67% project thing? Yes. So cool and so beautiful and so well done. Everyone, I guess, I don't know if this will be out when it'll probably be over by the time this is out, but I don't know. I'm sure they'll have like pictures or clips or something. Well, I just talked to, um, Kelsey Miller about it today because she's been, she's a friend of mine. She's been on the podcast a couple of times and, um, she, I'm posting the episode on Friday as like a special thing for, uh, international podcast day. But she said, um, yeah, but she said that it's like this week is their launch week and it's sort of, they're, um, trying to adhere to the 67%, like exactly. So they're like 67% of the images on their site for this week are, um, plus size women, but then going forward, they're going to continue that not necessarily like exactly 67%, but like that, you know? Yeah. Cause they, they shot a, I mean, you know, the, the work and the technical skill that has to go into something like this, like they had to shoot new stock photography. They had to, you know, it's like, it's an investment. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, I was going to say, I'm sure they would just do 67% all the time if it wasn't mm -hmm. like completely infrastructurally impossible to do all the time, given the fact that the entire industry right now is so heavily biased around them and they Mm -hmm. depend on all of these external industry contractors, you know what I mean? Like, exactly. Like, all the models are this, you know, so it's Mm -hmm. just, yeah. And, you know, I totally understand. I I completely understand. I think it's incredibly amazing that they're even doing it for a week. I know. And so many, so much energy and resources into doing it just this week. And I think it's one of the coolest projects I've ever seen. I mean, there's so many interesting body image, sort of body positive projects similar to that, like coming up all the time, you know, like the, this project, the, that project, Mm -hmm. this is like one of the one, this should like get an award in my opinion. Like I just, I think that this is just effing brilliant. Um, and like one of the most powerful body image projects that has happened that I've, that I've come across in a very, very long time, because this is the problem. You know, they're really actually facing the core problem head on. Like what they are doing is saying we are a major media source and we are going to change the way major media sources represent women. Mm-hmm. And that is effing radical. Yeah. You know? like, I know because it, yeah, I mean, of women are in the plus size category and yet 
the images we see are of this 1% maybe of the population or really 0% because everybody's Photoshopped to the death and like nobody really looks like that, you know? Right. So it's like, how are, how is this vast majority of the population getting no representation? And then also the rest of the population, you know, 99% of us don't actually see what we look like in magazines at all, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm like super, super pumped. I'm excited for this whole conversation, though, to be expanded. And it is. It's Mm -hmm. being expanded, you know, around race, around gender. I'm really, really excited for this conversation to be expanded around age Mm -hmm. and to see like more diverse ages represented in the media. I think that's something I've become a lot more keenly aware of over the past couple years, particularly as Um, Some of my, you know, like basically like my clients and sort of the 45, 50 year old bracket and up, you know, they feel completely underrepresented, like even Mm -hmm. within the plus size, you know, I I will say even in, but like within the plus and all other communities, I feel like that's really problematic. You know, there's just so many, we need to be experiencing, we need, we need more inclusivity in media period. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm just, I'm very, very impressed with Refinery29 and what they're doing to, to make that a reality this week. Me too. Yeah, it's awesome. I uh, I love too that they partnered with Getty Images to make some of that stock photography available because another big issue is that stock photography is all one type of person, you know? And right. then like Kelsey was saying on that episode, it's like, if you do see a larger body person, it's, you know, they're fucking measuring themselves with a measuring tape or like, you right. know, looking sad and, and like looking sadly at food or whatever. And that's not, that's right. not representative, you know, that's not representation. Totally. So totally. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh my God. That's so awesome. many good things happening in the world. Yay. <laughs> um, we're going to have oh. to wrap up. We've like, I could talk to you forever. We could just keep going for hours more, but mm-hmm. I'm sure people have to go somewhere and like go to work or something. So <laughs> can't mm-hmm. listen to the podcast. I have to go to work. All day. To yeah, work. same here, actually. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure and a thrill as always. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Such a pleasure. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guest for being here and to you guys for listening. We'll be back again with another brand new episode. So be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Android or whatever your favorite podcast app is if you haven't done so already. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch with you online. The best way is by email. So if you join my email VIP list, you'll get exclusive tips about intuitive eating and body positivity and updates about all my work as well as new episodes of the podcast. So if you go to christyharrison.com slash email, you can sign up there. That's christyharrison.com slash email. And I would love to have you guys all on my VIP list. And then you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Food Psych on Facebook and Food Psych Pod on Twitter. I am also on Instagram, just me this time. I don't have a separate account for the podcast, but I'm on Instagram at Christy Harrison and the first I is a one. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening and until next time, stay psyched. 